lessons from a life spent searching for lasting satisfaction. So over the past seven weeks, with sermons from Sam, Alex, Tim and Josh, we have been looking at the book of Ecclesiastes together. We've identified its author, it's Solomon, and uh, he refers to himself as the preacher. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon is writing about his journey of searching for peace and lasting satisfaction in life apart from God, a search that proves itself to be futile or vanity or meaningless, as we repeatedly read all over Ecclesiastes. The topic of today's sermon is a particularly hard one, but before we get into it, let's start with an illustration. Have you ever boarded a flight and wondered why some people feel the need to jump the line and push past you to get quicker to their seat? Doesn't really make much sense, does it? I mean, you all leave at the same time, you all get to the same place at the same time, you land at the same time. Well, no matter if you sit in first class, no matter if you sit in coach, in the back where the lavatory is, no matter if you can stretch your legs or, like me, you keep hitting your knees against the seat in front of you, no matter how much you paid for your ticket or whether you travel for work or for vacation, you will all get there at the same time. So in a sense, a flight has a very equalizing effect I mean, putting aside that curtain that they closed so that you can't see the nice food in the first class, maybe. <laughs> But now, imagine this flight does not reach its destination. But it crashes. Think of what happened, for example, on July 17, 2014, when Malaysia Airlines Flight 17, flying from Amsterdam to Kuala Lumpur, was shot down in an area of eastern Ukraine. All 298 people on board, 283 passengers and 15 crew members died. Again, no matter rich or poor, crew or business traveler or tourist, first class, business class, coach, nice person or not so nice person, and no matter their individual life stories, the same thing happened to all of them. They all crashed down to their certain death. Consider this. Statistics say that every second, two people die worldwide. And I'm sorry to kind of seemingly pull everybody down now with the mood. But uh, it's an important topic because it concerns us all. Every single person in this room, myself included, will die one day. Unless Christ comes back first. Let that sink in for a moment. So today's sermon is based on Ecclesiastes 9 verses 1 to 6. The passage deals, as you can imagine now already, uh, with a very serious but also very profound topic, the certainty of death. 
The title of today's sermon is No One Gets Out Alive, Learn to Live by Preparing to Die. The last bit I borrowed from an article that you can find on Desiring God. It's written by a pastor from Aberdeen, Scotland called David Gibson, and I thought it was a very helpful catchphrase. Before we read our scripture, I need to highlight something. As we've all learned over the past few weeks, the book of Ecclesiastes teaches us that life under the sun is meaningless. Under the sun meaning a life lived apart from God, the only giver of true joy and lasting satisfaction. So whatever the author says in Ecclesiastes and of course also in our scripture today, we need to read it through this lens that it applies to a life lived under the sun. If we don't do this, then uh, we will misunderstand and we also run the risk of despairing over this passage. So let's look at the passage for today. Ecclesiastes 9, 1 to 6. I will read from ESV. But all this I lay to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun." Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning and we thank you for your word that is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path that never returns to you void. Lord, may your word accomplish in our hearts what you intended. Open our hearts, Lord, open our ears this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have an outline. Let's look at it together. We'll start with verse 1. God's sovereignty. Even the righteous and wise do not have control over God. Then verses 2 and 3. The common destination, death happens to all. 
verses 4 to 6, better alive than dead, but why exactly? So we will unpack these headlines. The passage is relatively short, so um, let's look at the different verses. We'll start with point one, verse one. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. So the preacher starts with all this. What is he talking about? He's referring to the previous conclusion that he comes to in chapter 8, verse 17. Here he says, Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. So Solomon is basically drawing the conclusion that God's government of the world is unfathomable. It's too high to fully understand, even for the wise. He then continues this thought at the beginning of our passage. He talks about God's sovereignty that is in place over the righteous and the wise and their deeds. Everything is in God's hands. And then he continues, he says, Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. There are different ways of interpreting this, according to the commentary writers, but one way of looking at, is, uh, at it is um, going with D.A. Garrett, for example. Love and hate refer to one's perception of God's disposition towards them, meaning no one knows by the outward events of his life whether he is the object of God's favor or displeasure. And either way, God's favor or displeasure are before them. Before them can either mean that nobody knows what is awaiting them, or it means that God's favor or displeasure have been anchored in advance in God's sovereign and eternal will. Either way, the conclusion is man does not know what's going to happen. Let's move on to our second point. Death happens to all. Verses 2 and 3. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that they go to the dead. So here in this passage we can see how Solomon is pairing up several examples of people. Always a positive with a negative example. And he points out that the fact that the same event, meaning death, as we can see in the later verses that are going to come, the same event happens to all. 
So he pairs up the righteous and the wicked, the good and the evil. This is pretty self-explanatory. <clears throat> Excuse me. Then he moves on to the clean and the unclean. This refers to the mosaic laws of cleanliness. So certain actions of a person could make that person ceremonially unclean for a while. <coughs> Sorry. Like, for example, touching a dead body. That would make a person unclean. Then he moves on to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. So here he refers to the Old Testament sacrificial system. You know, the Israelites, they had to provide animal sacrifices to atone for their sins. And then when he says, as the good one is, so is the sinner, he is not equating a good person with a bad or a good one with a sinner. But he's saying that both will die. And the same applies to he who swears and he who shuns an oath. This refers to one who keeps a covenant and one who doesn't. The same event, death, happens to both of them. So we see that death does not just happen to those who fall into the negative category. It is also happening to the righteous and the wise and the faithful. When I read these examples from Solomon of different types of people and how they all will eventually die, I'm reminded of the lyrics of a song by the Christian rapper Shay Lin. I don't know if anybody of you were into Christian rap in the early 2000s up until 2010. Um, but um, I, I thought it was great. I still like it. Uh, especially the artists uh, back then that were on lamp mode recordings. Um, you may have come across Shaylin, maybe. Um, if it's not uh, for your love for Christian rap, <laughs> maybe it's because of his involvement with the Gospel Coalition in the last couple of years. And he wrote a song called I'm the One. And in this song, he takes up the persona of death. And then from death's perspective, he points out the certainty of death and the foolishness of those who live like it won't happen to them. The chorus goes like this. I'm the one that the movies use to entertain. And I'm the one that seems fun on video games. I'm the one that the rappers like to shout about. And I'm the one that does to them what comes out of their mouth. I'm the one that's broadcast on the news nightly. Yeah, I'm the one that's, that most take too lightly. I'm the one that's been the enemy for centuries. You'll all come to me eventually. And then he goes on giving examples of all types of people that death sooner or later comes to. I'm presently reckoning, statistically, I strike every three seconds, which makes about 80 people by the end of this record. So check it as I indicate and convincingly demonstrate how I don't discriminate with people I eliminate. The middle class, I'm knocking them off. And I'm even dropping the poor. The riches of the wealthy can help them when I knock on the door. Everybody drops to the floor. The hottest won't be hot anymore. 
And then later he goes on, I strike universally from slums to universities, from nurseries to nursing homes. That's true diversity. And it's all the same for the dropout or the well-schooled when he dies. Likewise, the cool and despised, the fool and the wise. I think it's safe to say that he was inspired by Ecclesiastes when writing these rhymes. Like Solomon, he comes to the conclusion that the same event happens to all. Everybody dies. And in our text, Solomon is frustrated about this. And he says in verse 3, the first part, this is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. And then Solomon deals with something. <coughs> Excuse me. So Solomon then deals with something we already looked at in Sam's sermon two weeks ago. Because God seemingly treats the righteous like he does the sinner and the wise like he does the mad, people might ask themselves, what's then the point of being righteous? What's the point of being wise? And that's why in the second part of verse 3, Solomon says, also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. Remember what I mentioned earlier. We need to look at this passage through the lens that this observation applies to life under the sun. The people of the Old Testament had a very fuzzy idea of what comes after death. And we'll get to, back to that point later. Now we proceed to point three, better alive than dead. Verses four to six. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. So, Solomon is talking about hope for the living. In Solomon's culture, dogs were considered dirty animals, whereas lions were considered noble animals. But here he says, a living dog is better than a dead lion. In other words, what good is nobility and honor if you're dead? Because death, according to Solomon, is the end of it all. So it's better to be despised, but still alive. And why is that? Solomon tells us in verses 5 and 6, For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. So, with death being the end of all things, the living are better off because they know that they will die. 
So basically what Solomon is saying here is that the advantage of being alive is that you can know that you will die. What kind of advantage is that, you may ask? Imagine you are watching a movie and the only thing you like about it is that it will be over in two hours. It almost seems like sarcasm. It is supposed to be, is this the hope? Is this the hope that Solomon is talking about in verse 4? If this is it, what should be the consequence? Solomon later suggests in verses 7 to 10, which are not part of our passage, but there he suggests to enjoy life while it lasts to enjoy things like food, wine, clean clothes, your spouse, your work, all while still pointing out that a life filled with these things is still a vain life. You can read that in verse 9 if you want to go there. From our perspective, this is a very dark picture that Solomon is painting here. The advantage of being alive is to know that you will die so that you can enjoy some stuff while still knowing full well that it's all in vain? But can we maybe, whether Solomon was aware of it or not, find a shimmer of hope in this as well? Like a door left a crack wide open in a dark room revealing that beyond this room that we're in there is light out there? Let's step out of Ecclesiastes and out of the Old Testament into the New Testament. And let's focus on the perspective of someone who has a clearer picture of what happens after the end. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul is talking about the resurrection. I'll read from verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ, we have hope in this life only. We are of all people most to be pitied. But then Paul moves on and says in verse 20 and 21, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For by a man that is Adam came death, by a man that is Christ has come also the resurrection of the dead. 
Let's jump to verse 32. It's almost like Paul is giving an answer to Solomon here. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we'll die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. So if you are a Christian, if you place your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have hope that when you die in Christ, it is not the end. In fact, in Philippians 1, verse 21, Paul says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Paul could only say this because of his firm belief that death is not the end of it, but it's only the beginning of an eternity in the presence of Christ in all his glory. Now, those who die as unbelievers, they do not have this hope. What comes after life under the sun will be hell. And that is a miserable eternity separated from God. I'm not trying to scare anybody. But it is for a good reason that Jesus spoke more about hell than any other person in the Bible. Even our friend Shay Lin ends his song with a warning from death's perspective. The point is, no escape in this route. Naked you came in and naked you're out. You've been sleeping apparently, so now listen carefully. Don't act like you're not aware of me. How are you going to prepare for me? I feel like doing some charity, so here's some free advice. If you don't want to see me twice... Repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Wherever you stand today, if you are still alive, there is still hope. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ. So let's look at the application. What should we do? In Psalm 90, Moses addresses God in verses 11 and 12. And he says this, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. The great preacher and theologian of the 1800s, Charles Spurgeon, wrote this about Psalm 90 verse 12. And the language is a bit antiquated, but I think we'll understand him. Instruct us to set store by time, mourning for that time past wherein we have wrought the will of the flesh, using diligently the time present, which is the accepted hour and the day of salvation, and reckoning the time which lieth in the future to be too uncertain to allow us safely to delay any gracious work or prayer. So he says, mourn about the time you've wasted. 
Use the present time as your day of salvation. And look at the future as too uncertain to be procrastinating. He then goes on, It is most meet that the heart, which will so soon cease to beat, should, while it moves, be regulated by wisdom's hand. A short life should be wisely spent. We have not enough time at our disposal to justify us in misspending a single quarter of an hour. Neither are we sure of enough life to justify us in procrastinating for a moment. Know that you will die. But death is not the end. So live your life with eternity in mind. Or in other words, we need to learn to live by preparing to die. We need to number our days. We need to keep in mind that our time is limited. So may the Lord help us, myself included, to not waste our time. As Christians, our lives are not in vain. Our lives have a purpose and a mission. Our purpose, or our chief end, as the Westminster Catechism says, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And our mission is the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all nations, Matthew 28. And that's why at River of Life we always mention that we exist to invite as many people as possible to know, love, and follow Christ. If you are here today and you are not a believer, but you have heard the words of Solomon and Moses and Paul, remember that your time is limited. Where will you spend your eternity? If you still have questions, please come and talk to Sam or Alex or myself after the service. And I want to end with the words of Jesus in John 10, 27 and 28. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that sometimes we need to, brought, need to be brought down in order to look up, to look at you, Lord, and look at your amazing grace. Look at what you have accomplished for us on the cross through your sacrifice, Lord Jesus. You gave your life so that we could live. Thank you, Jesus, for your righteousness credited to us. Thank you, Lord, that we may know you and follow you and in you have eternal life. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.